You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 218 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. With the last episode, we talked about the Battle of Iuka, which took place on September 19, 1862 in northern Mississippi. As y'all recall, the federal commander Ulysses S. Grant had planned to trap Sterling Price's small Confederate army at Iuka and defeat it. But when one arm of Grant's pincer movement failed to join in the battle on the 19th, Price was able to successfully slip away the next day. At the end of the last show, we said that the only thing that had been settled by the battle at Iuka and Sterling Price's successful escape was that it was now inevitable that Price's small army would link up with the other Confederate force operating in Mississippi, which was commanded by Earl Van Dorn. And we pointed out that once the two generals joined forces, Van Dorn, who was technically senior in rank to Price, would be in command, and whereas Price had been racked by indecision and had delayed moving against the Federals, Van Dorn would show decisive leadership. Although it would be the same sort of leadership Van Dorn had displayed during the Pea Ridge campaign in Arkansas, that is, reckless and rash. In any case, since the Federals made little effort to pursue Sterling Price after he slipped away from Iuka, he and Van Dorn were able to finally link up on September 28th at Ripley, Mississippi, about 32 or so miles southwest of Corinth. Interestingly, in his book, The Darkest Days of the War, The Battles of Iuka and Corinth, Peter Cousins reports that at dusk on the 28th, a small earthquake rocked the ground around Ripley and... And, for those who care to see it as such, that earthquake can be seen as an ominous sign of what was about to happen to the Confederates at Corinth. Dun-dun-dun! Okay. Anyway, when Van Dorn and Price met on September 28th, Van Dorn straightaway proposed taking the offensive with the newly enlarged force he now commanded. He reviewed the distribution of Federal forces as he understood them. 6,000 men at Memphis, 8,000 at Bolivar, Tennessee, 3,000 at Jackson, Tennessee, 15,000 at Corinth, and 10,000 scattered around various outposts, including Iuka. And so before the Federals could concentrate their forces to oppose him, Van Dorn intended to strike at Corinth with the 22,000 men of his and Price's commands. 
Van Dorn stressed that speed and surprise were critical to the success of his plan, so the army would march first toward Pocahontas, just across the state line in southern Tennessee, and ostentatiously begin to work on a bridge over the Tuscumbia River to give the impression the rebels' target was Bolivar. But rather than cross the river and strike northward, Van Dorn would suddenly turn his army to the east and by a forced march descend upon Corinth. Dun-dun-dun! Rich! Okay. It was 19 miles from Pocahontas to Corinth, and the road was good, so Van Dorn thought that his feint toward Pocahontas would leave his army just one day's hard marching from the outskirts of Corinth. Van Dorn was well aware that four months earlier, during Halleck's big drive on the town, the Confederates under P.G.T. Beauregard had constructed some field fortifications to protect Corinth, and now the Federals would be able to occupy those defensive works. But Van Dorn knew that those earthworks had mostly been constructed on the northeast side of town, the direction from which Halleck had approached Corinth. Van Dorn, however, would be coming in from the northwest, so counted on striking the weakest section of the defenses. And despite the haste with which he put together his plan, Earl Van Dorn had actually taken into consideration strategic concerns, since he realized his goal was not only to recapture Corinth, but to aid Braxton Bragg's invasion of Kentucky by creating as much havoc as possible in northern Mississippi and western Tennessee. Van Dorn even had visions of striking up into western Kentucky, dancing in his head. Attacking Corinth would be the first step in that, and would open the door for Van Dorn to attempt those larger, grander things. Or, that was Van Dorn's plan, anyway. Van Dorn's generals were divided on the merits and practicality of his plan. Dabney Mari came out wholeheartedly in favor of the scheme. Mansfield Lovell, who had lost New Orleans to the Federals back in the spring, preferred to march right up into western Tennessee, but conceded that if Van Dorn could score an easy victory at Corinth, it would be greatly beneficial. But if Maury was in favor of the plan and Lovell was on the fence, Sterling Price was strongly, emphatically, categorically opposed to it. He agreed that the taking of Corinth, in his words, quote, warranted more than the usual hazard of battle, end quote. But Price wanted to reduce those risks by waiting for a substantial infusion of new troops. Well, kind of new troops. You see, the 14,000 or so Confederate soldiers who had become prisoners when Grant captured Fort Donelson and Pope took Island Number 10 had finally been exchanged and were assembling down at Jackson, Mississippi. Price wanted to wait until these men had been rearmed and organized and were available to reinforce him and Van Dorn. Without those men, Price failed to see how the Confederates could hold Corinth, much less move on to do greater things after they'd recaptured the town. Price pointed out that if they suffered heavy losses in taking Corinth, which was likely, Van Dorn would be hard-pressed just to hold what he'd won. So Price thought it was better to wait for the returned prisoners before striking at the Yankees. But Van Dorn dismissed Price's concerns. He insisted that an attack must be made on Corinth and that it must be made quickly. 
The earliest the released prisoners could be ready to rejoin the army was the last week of October, and Van Dorn wasn't going to wait that long. He told Price that speed, not numbers, was key to recapturing Corinth, and so he ordered the troops at Ripley to immediately prepare three days' cooked rations, and then Lovell's division would move out the next morning, September 29th, with Price's just-arrived men following later that day, if possible, or on the 30th. Before a frustrated Price left the meeting, Van Dorn pointed out that he seemed unhappy, but Price pulled himself together, brushed aside his doubts about the plan, and told Van Dorn, No, you quite mistake me. I have only given you the facts within my knowledge and the counseling of my judgment. When you reach Corinth, you shall find that no portion of the army shall exceed mine either in courage, in conduct, or in achievement. Well, Sterling Price was obviously stating what he hoped would be true, since it was his command that stood to suffer most if Van Dorn's plan failed. Price had brought just over 14,000 men with him to link up with Van Dorn, about 6,600 infantry in Hebert's division, 3,900 under Maury, 1,400 horsemen under Armstrong, and 900 or so artillerymen. Van Dorn, on the other hand, had brought perhaps 7,000 men in all, in Lovell's division, in two cavalry regiments. And so, although Sterling Price was contributing two-thirds of the force for this operation, and he had grave doubts about it, he had no real voice in what was happening. As he had during the Pea Ridge campaign, Earl Van Dorn was again moving quickly and decisively. So, for good or for ill, this was going to be Van Dorn's show. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. After leaving Ripley and marching northward, Price's men were put to work, 
acting as if they were going to rebuild the bridge over the Tuscumbia River south of Pocahontas, so the Federals would, would think the Confederates were going to strike up into Tennessee. Meanwhile, after marching north to the state line like Price's men, Lovell's troops started eastward to begin the rebels' move toward Corinth. Lovell was headed for Chihuahua, which was just across the state line in Tennessee and only about nine miles from Corinth. But to reach Chihuahua, the Confederates would have to cross the Hatchie River, and Lovell discovered the Federals had partially burned Davis's bridge over the river, and so Lovell set his men to repairing the bridge, and once the work was finished, he resumed the march to Chihuahua. And just something to tuck away in the back of your mind for now, but after the Confederate defeat at Corinth, Van Dorn will have the army retreat back the way it had come, and Davis's bridge will figure prominently in the Federals' attempt to catch the retreating rebels and finish them off. Yep, uh, but here, after crossing the Hatchie River at Davis's bridge on the morning of October 2nd, Wirt Adams' cavalry were left behind to guard it while the rest of the Confederates moved four miles to the east to cross the Tuscumbia River before reaching Chihuahua. Van Dorn left the Army's trains on the west bank of the river so the wagons wouldn't be in the way when he hit Corinth. Lieutenant Colonel E.R. Hawkins, 1st Texas Legion, and a battery of artillery were left behind to guard the wagons and to help Wirt Adams if he got into trouble. Van Dorn continued on and reached Chihuahua before nightfall on October 2nd. Meanwhile, Lovell's advance took him to a point near Cane Creek, only five miles from downtown Corinth. Price's command was stretched along the road as far back as the Tuscumbia River. All of the Confederates bivouacked right along the road the night of the 2nd, tired from the hard marching in the heat and humidity, but Van Dorn was optimistic, believing his feint toward Pocahontas and his army's rapid marching had brought his daring plan to the verge of success. The enemy, though, would be ready for him. The Federals had been readjusting their defensive posture ever since the Battle of Iuka. After Iuka, Rosecrans and Grant were back at Corinth by September 26th, which just happened to be the day that Rosecrans received official word of his promotion to Major General. That day, Grant also decided to move his headquarters up to Jackson, Tennessee, and he slightly reorganized his district of West Tennessee so that Sherman had about 6,800 troops at Memphis, Ord commanded almost 18,000 men at Jackson and Bolivar, and Rosecrans had about 20,000 men at and around Corinth. A fourth division was comprised of just over 6,000 troops who were scattered in various places across northwestern Tennessee and up into western Kentucky. Rosecrans worked hard to ready his command for an attack because once Van Dorn and Price joined forces, Rosecrans thought that a Confederate attack on Corinth seemed inevitable, but strong detachments manning outposts and patrolling the region left Rosecrans with only about 10,000 men actually garrisoning Corinth. Rosecrans put them to work strengthening the town's defenses, along with able-bodied contrabands who had come into the Union lines. They were organized into 25-man squads and put to work alongside the soldiers. You guys know by now, of course, that Corinth was important strategically because it was a vital rail junction where the Memphis and Charleston Railroad and Mobile and Ohio Railroad crossed in a remote corner of northeastern Mississippi. 
Rosecrans later recalled how Corinth itself was, quote, mainly on low flat ground, flanked by low rolling ridges, and except for the cleared patches, covered with oaks and undergrowth for miles in all directions, end quote. And by this time in the war, Corinth had three lines of defenses. The old Confederate line, built by Beauregard back in the spring, was two and a half miles outside of town on the east, north, and northwest. It had deteriorated, and Rosecrans called it merely, quote, a line of light defensive works. In June, Halleck had ordered the construction of a second, shorter line, one and a half miles from town. It was a series of detached artillery emplacements stretching from the Memphis and Charleston Railroad to the south to cover the ground not protected by the old Confederate line. The problem was that Rosecrans realized early on that he didn't have enough men to man the Halleck line. And so Rosecrans suggested to Grant, and Grant finally approved, the construction of an inner set of defensive works right on the outskirts of Corinth, anchored on College Hill. Under the direction of a talented engineer officer, Captain Frederick Prime, five earthen redoubts were constructed within a half mile of the railroad junction in the waning days of summer. Each of these earthwork bastions had high parapets with ditches in front and embrasures for cannon. These strong points on the College Hill line were named Battery Robinette, Battery Williams, Battery Phillips, Battery Tanrath, and Battery Lothrop. Now, there's not going to be a quiz on all that, but we just wanted you to know that the Federals had constructed these individual strong points right on the edge of town, and we wanted you to already be familiar with some of those names when we mention them again during the course of the battle. Exactly. Okay, so anyway, when he returned to Corinth after the Battle of Iuka, Rosecrans put the men to work strengthening those strong points. As Rich said, they were really just detached, separate positions, but Rosecrans ordered work to be started so that they'd be connected by breastworks, and he wanted the ground to the west and north covered by abatis, which, remember, was when trees were cut down or branches were placed so that they'd impede and disrupt the advance of the attackers. Right. So the Union troops, along with the contrabands, worked at a frantic pace to get all of this done. Rosecrans also directed that the line of redoubts, which covered the south and west sides of town, be extended to cover the approaches from the north. So construction began on Battery Powell, which was situated a half mile north of town and a mile east of Battery Robinette. Uh, again, you don't need to memorize the names of all those defensive positions. We just wanted you to be familiar with them before we mention them again during the battle. Okay, so at any rate, in the closing days of September, the Federals knew the Confederates were on the move, but they didn't know where Van Dorn would strike. Would he move up into western Tennessee? Would he attack Corinth? For his part, Rosecrans was fairly certain Corinth would be attacked, but Grant wasn't so sure, and as department commander, he had to cover all his bases. That meant Grant felt obliged to leave his forces where they were until the enemy's intentions became clearer. So within the department, Grant had made his defensive dispositions, and now he waited to see what Van Dorn would do. 
Surrendering the initiative to his opponent made Grant a bit nervous, though, as evidenced by a message he sent to General-in-Chief Henry Halleck in Washington. Grant told Halleck, My position is precarious, but I hope to get out of it all right. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Corinth, 1862, Siege, Battle, Occupation, by Timothy B. Smith. Smith's book is a first-rate history that not only brings to life the dramatic struggle for Corinth here in October 1862, but also offers a detailed look at the quote-unquote siege back in May 1862, and books that take a close look at that operation are few and far between, so the coverage here in Smith's book is much appreciated. Anyway, that's Corinth, 1862, Siege, Battle, Occupation, by Timothy B. Smith. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. At the website, you can also start the process of joining the Strawfoot Brigade, just like Scott, Joe, and Arthur did recently. So thanks, guys, for that. Uh, we appreciate the support. And then, since it's that time of the year, we wanted to remind you that Spiritwood Music, whose song Midnight on the Water we use on the podcast, also has some lovely instrumental Christmas music. Yep, tis the season. And you'll be hard-pressed to find prettier Christmas music than these songs by Spiritwood Music, so please check them out. We're eternally grateful they let us use their song when we were just starting out with the show five years ago. So if you'd pick up some of their music now, uh, you're helping us show them how thankful we are. And we'll put a link up on Facebook and Twitter and the website uh, to their website. But you can also find Spiritwood Music songs on iTunes and Google Play and Amazon and most everywhere you normally purchase or download music. Okay. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time as we continue with the story of the Battle of Corinth. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.